Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Uh, today's episode is about both The Favorite and Roma and I'm excited to be joined again by my friend Elijah Howard to talk about both these movies. Elijah, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Always glad to be here. Yeah. Happy and, to be back. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, like I... Uh, I think we had a pretty wide-ranging talk last time you were here between Overlord and the other side of the wind, but like now we're we're like deep in the heart of Oscar season, and it's exciting because this is the, I think the first time I'm going to be talking about uh, two movies at once that are going to be uh, getting Best Picture nominations. So, uh, assuming all these awards predictions and stuff hold, but like I think that's a fairly safe bet at this point. But uh, we're going to talk about the favorite first, which is the newest film from Yorgos Lanthimos, who's uh, had three films in as many years with uh, the Lobster a couple years ago, his first English language film. The Killing of a Sacred Deer last year, but before that he had he had Dogtooth a couple of years before that, which is uh, kind of what put him on the map. And but the favorite's a movie that stars uh, three women primarily: Olivia Coleman mm-hmm. as Queen Anne, Rachel Weisz as her confidant and advisor, Sarah Churchill, and Emma Stone as Abigail Hill, who plays uh, Churchill's cousin, whose family has fallen down the social hierarchy and she kind of shows up to town uh wanting to change that and it's uh largely a story about how she's going to kind of work her way into the system and uh earn the favor of the queen hence the uh title of the movie but uh elijah i guess where i want to start with you on this was uh i i I know you really enjoyed this movie but i think i and i didn't learn too much about it going in other than to know that like just based on what i'd heard and the little i had watched of the the couple times i'd seen the trailer that uh it seemed like it was going to be like at least a little different from maybe what we got grown accustomed to from Yorgos Lanthimos so I guess my first question to you is uh what did you want coming into this film and especially in the context of a director like Yorgos Lanthimos and uh did did it how was it able to exceed your expectations well I mean I found that um watching the trailers I was reminded of uh, of a couple different movies I was reminded I think uh, most obviously like a lot of people were watching it of Barry Lyndon the Stanley Kubrick film um which is a similarly dry, extremely dry, uh, but some in some ways comedic uh, historical epic about a man who falls from grace and his you know trials and tribulations through a similar period in history. Um, I was also reminded of a film called The Draftsman's Contract, which is uh, a, um, a very, very dark comedy from the 80s. Uh, by a director named Peter Greenaway, uh, who is kind of notorious for making these sort of films. Um, and it, uh, it struck me as just very similar to that. And um, I was excited to see somebody like Yorgos Lanthimos take on that time period because there's a lot, obviously, to lampoon with that kind of history. You say it's his uh, first period piece, which I guess makes it a little different from those others that we mentioned. But, yeah, it's interesting for him to go back in time. Yeah, yeah. I mean um, – to, to, to have him take that on, uh, you know, and have that element of comedy and see how he examines it um, and what he can bring to the table uh, personally, uniquely to himself um, that maybe other films that I still enjoyed didn't have. Um, so that was what I was looking forward to going into it, to see that personal angle, to see, you know, how he approached the material and uh, to, you know, to just laugh at that kind of history because it's a uh, it's full of weird stuff so yeah did you have like a did you have a big takeaway because i think the biggest takeaway for me though is that like i think i 
for any segment of any of those last three movies of his, like I enjoyed the first half of The Lobster, I think more than any of them, but I didn't love the second half of either that or Killing of a Sacred Deer, and I thought Dogtooth was like the most consistent. And I think, uh, I think the funny thing about this movie is that like I thought it was able to be funny and entertaining throughout while still like keeping a lot of, and even though it wasn't one of his scripts he didn't write it like unlike those other movies like it still it still felt like it had his unique stamp throughout even if these characters don't necessarily talk in the same kind of stilted dialogue that they do in those last two movies it has like this it has like this score going throughout that i guess i don't know it, it evokes a little bit more of a darkness that you think about when you think about his other movies yet at the same time like these characters are still like kind of funny and he's lampooning them the entire time and it kind of allowed allowed for me at least to like make it feel like I was watching Yorgos Lanthimos film the whole time yet I don't know I was still just as entertained for the second half as I was for the first half and I just I, I don't know I, I, there wasn't like a dull moment the whole time for me and I thought there were parts kind yeah. of at the end of Killing a Sacred Deer where like some of those segments like in the house at the end they just go on and on and on and I I, I got a little bored in that where I that just didn't happen here and is in the second half of The Lobster I, I didn't know about the movie's message about relationships and if it held up as well and I'm, I'm curious to think uh, what you thought about that and just how how he was able to just like kind of feed the audience with a lot of the entertainment led largely by these three actresses. Yeah. Um, well, I think, I think one of the key differences and something that's obviously gets brought up, um, you know, when discussing this movie is that it, it wasn't necessarily just his film. This is the first film that he's worked on where the screenplay, um, has had other people touching it. Um, this one was written, uh, by Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara, um, and so I think it was interesting how they married, uh, you know, those sensibilities from Lanthimos's other films um, with what was being uh, said and what was being accomplished with this film. And I, I think one of the ways they did that is by reexamining um, how comedy is introduced to his scripts, because huh. I think his, his other films are funny, um, but I think they're probably... They they skirt the line. They they tantalize the line of funny, intentionally funny, and unintentionally funny. Um, they they go very ambiguously towards that line, right? Of where it's hard to tell whether we're laughing at what characters are saying because of how they're saying it and because of how ridiculous it is, or whether we're laughing because what they're saying is actually funny. Yeah, I think um, I think I think there's more of that second kind in the lobster, whereas in like Sacred Deer, you're just like laughing at how like crazy some of the stuff Barry Keoghan is saying is. It's like, did you really just say that? Are you serious exactly. right now? And it's just funny, but not because he's saying something that in and of itself is like a funny statement. Exactly, and I think that this movie maybe had had the most broad based appeal, both to obviously fans of Lanthimos as well as general moviegoers, you know, um, because of how much it, it introduces from both sides. Um, it both it has elements where you're laughing because something is absurd and not necessarily the most coherent. Um, and you're also laughing because there are some lines in there that are just really, really funny, really um, uh, filled with double meaning and a lot of uh, a lot of double entendre and a lot of uh, uh, just kind of salaciousness that you have to laugh at. I mean, it was it was wonderful. Um, in that way to me yeah and i think i I mean i always talk about performances when i do the podcast and Mm -hmm. either when i like write reviews or when i do podcasts like it's something that i'll kind of just like 
I'll, I'll throw it there at the end. You know, it's like I'll have a long conversation about a movie. It's like, oh, well, what do you think of this performance? What do you think of this actress here? What do you think of this actor there? And I, I kind of do it as like just like a tack on at the end because it's a, it's a fun thing to talk about. Like how, did, how well did that actor actress do? But I, I, I don't want to really relegate that to the end of this discussion because I mean I think the movie largely does rest on the shoulders of these three actresses. And there's a couple performances, supporting performances by some actors that we, I should, we should touch on. But I mean. W- uh, you're talking about this kind of humor here and how it's able to derive it from more maybe traditionally funny sources than some of these other movies. And I think uh, that maybe is no more apparent than just what Olivia Coleman does as Queen Anne, which as course. which is uh, actually becomes a rather tragic performance as it goes on. But like for much of the first like the first portion of the movie, though, it's like just by like a look that she gives it it, la- it made my theater laugh you know pretty wholeheartedly it's like and not even just the part where like um where uh churchill is calling her a badger which is really funny and and just the way it's delivered that someone would and it says a lot about the relationship in that moment where someone is able to tell the queen that it's like actually a really interesting moment just that that character is able to say it to that specific person in that position yet at the same time it's just really funny because she's calling her a badger but in in other parts, aside from that, like just a, a look, a pathetic look that Anne gives is like enough to generate big laughs. And that's like really impressive. Right. And I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, most I, I would I would say that most film going audiences to this movie, um, this was a new thing for them seeing Olivia Coleman. Um, I don't think a lot of people really knew her. Um, at, at least in America, I would say most people probably didn't know her outside of maybe having seen her once or twice um, as a character actor in things like Hot Fuzz, or uh, she pops up in another Lanthimos film. She pops up in The Lobster. Yeah, she's the hotel um, for, manager, right? For a little bit. Yeah, yes, exactly. But other than that, um, she's like done a lot of TV, really, you know, just like the Fleabag, yeah. Rog Church, and uh, Yeah, like Night Manager. Like, yeah, yeah. So she's like yeah. really good, but it's just kind of cool that she's having. Right. A, she's going to have a moment here, you know? Yeah, I mean, she, but she's a stellar actress, and I don't think that's something that everybody knows about her. But, I mean, she's won a handful of BAFTAs. She's won a Golden Globe. She's, won, she's been nominated for Emmys. I mean, mm-hmm. she's, a, she's a renowned actress. Um, so I, I, I don't want to say I was um, surprised necessarily. Um, but at the same time, I, that's not to downplay her performance as truly revelatory. I mean, this is probably... I, I think it's the best thing I've seen her in on top of an already incredible career. Um, and uh, she's just she she's picked up a lot, I think, from the staginess of television, uh, uh, excuse me, of television. And uh, I think that really came through in this performance that there was just there was so much expressiveness and so much physicality to her role. And it's a role that demands it. You know, this wasn't this wasn't, uh, you know, phoned in and it wasn't done in an attempt to overdo the role. It is, you know, the role of Queen Anne, Mad Queen Anne has got to be, you know, tough to play. And so to fill that with such a, a dead on performance was yeah, uh, you know, fantastic. We should say for people who maybe are listening at this point and haven't seen the movie, or like, and are like me and just do not are not super well versed in English history in that manner. Uh, being a big part of the movie is that Queen Anne is suffering from gout, and uh, initially, how Abigail kind of ingratiates herself to a little bit is finding a finding uh, at least a temporary problem for some of the uh, problems she was having with leg pains and rashes and whatnot and that kind of thing. And but it's like a constant throughout the movie where she, her phys, physical condition is like constantly worsening and and a, and a lot of it is played for laughs early in the movie and then it becomes rather dark as you learn like more about her and she's not just having to like 
do do things for comedic effect as she is earlier in the movie like your your sympathies are well that's probably part of the mass the genius of the movie is how much your sympathies are maybe shifting amongst these characters throughout like she has she has a pretty she has a pretty clear arc when initially it seems like she might just kind of be like a joke of a character initially right i mean we you know we have this this kind of introduction to her through the leg and um and you know and then we see her collapse uh you know in the middle of the of the of the parliament session and we start to sort of wonder if this is all sort of a ruse you know is is this a performance in and of itself is queen (laughs) anne just faking these things and then the movie elliptically she has a stroke Mm. Um, she has a stroke and, and, and suffers from a palsy. And for the rest of the movie, she's talking out of one side of her face, um, <laughs> which is like horrendously, you know, sad and, and quite frightening. And the movie doesn't talk about it at all. We don't see her have a stroke. We don't see anything. We just cut back to her at one point, And all of a sudden she's just she's just talking out of one side of her mouth like. Yeah. And it's like and I think part of what made, I was so impressed about with the movie is that like it handles something like that and like that person being looked to to make and we we should say at the same time like the against the backdrop of this whole movie is that they are still like trying to manage the um their war with france as part of the war uh, spanish succession and she's having to constantly have people come to her to ask about these kind of things and it's and it's just like it's the war is talked about in such an offhand way yet it's like you're thinking about the fact that like she is in this physical condition and having to make like all of these decisions. And at the same time, Lanthimos is able to like, he's still able to kind of spoof lampoon, whatever you want to call it, all these people by just kind of showing the indifference with which they might treat something like war. You have this Nicholas Holt character uh, who, I guess these are all largely based on real people. He plays a guy named Robert Harley, who's someone with a lot of political influence, deep pockets. That's just constantly badgering her to like get out of the war and lower taxes and it's it's just kind of funny because I think it, uh, that that was what impressed me so much about the movie is that it was able to like feel still rather accessible at, for something for someone that it has as esoteric as Yorgos Lanthimos to do a period piece and still have it feel as accessible as it did to someone like me who doesn't know a lot about this history. I think it was just really impressive how he was able to like show all this kind of political jockeying that's going on at the same time as he's like showing telling the story of these few women it made it a lot easier to just digest the story as a whole just how he went about telling the story right and it, it's subversive um, at least in my opinion and, and i'll tell you why i think it is and that's because we approach movies um and when i say we um i i am specifically referring to men hmm. um i think we approach movies from the the understanding and expectation that um, there's going to be uh, masculine, if you will, heroes, feminine side characters, um, and then, uh, you know, um, damaged, perhaps even effeminate villains. Hmm. Um, And so this movie really screwed with expectations um, by presenting three female leads, none of whom really ever explicitly display feminine personalities. In fact, Rachel Weiss, I would say, leans very heavily into a masculine personality. Uh, Emma Stone's, you know, performance wavers back and forth. And in fact, Nicholas Holt fulfills that role of the effeminate side character um, mm-hmm. pretty well. I mean, and I thought it was a great performance, too, that he... 
you know, he's this stately, you know, bureaucrat, aristocrat. Um, and yet he's presented as sort of a voice cracking, like teenage girl who's just whining and gossiping and, you know, <laughs> um, and it really, it really messes with your expectations and kind of turns things on, on their head. Um, I'd like to think that like, he just never took off his makeup after Fury Road and just like went straight right. to this. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, 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 I agree. And like, I guess that I, when you put it in those terms, it's almost like even more impressive that he was able to. I guess, like you said, do all this uh, flipping of gender expectations and still tell this like super weird story. And I don't, I, I don't want to harp too much on the fact that I found it accessible because, like, the fact is, like, I'm still not sure how well this movie is going to do at the box office. I think it's um, hopefully it has like a nice build throughout like the the holidays and all that. But like, I, I, I hope people go and see it because it like it was something that like if you see like oh costume drama, people doing weird stuff. Like my mom like loves. My mom loves the crown. She loves stuff about Britain, but she like kind of saw a preview at one point and was like, "Oh, it just looks too weird for me." And I'm like, "I don't know. I feel like you would people are still going to get something out of it." And I hope that like I don't know, it's like a unique st- way of telling a story like you said just to put the characters um in that position and we haven't even really we 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 say that and we still haven't even really talked that much about like the actual like uh main story of this movie, which is I mean just actually the jockeying that like Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz do for the for the Queen's affections, and I feel like that's like a, it's actually just like a pretty fun, uh, thriller cat and mouse game, what, whatever you want to call it, if you will, and which I mean is a story that should translate pretty well to like a modern audience, in my opinion. And I guess I don't know. I guess we we more talked about uh, Olivia Coleman, but uh, what did you think of just about uh, how they set up that story and the introduction of Abigail as a character and. Uh, how how that went along because i mean i i don't know i i just found like i don't know i just found this movie like super entertaining like i keep saying and uh just the way that like we we already talked about all this external stuff going on around it but like it doesn't lose sight of this main story and i thought it was executed really well right and and in some ways there's there's one element of that that i want to get to but um i think i'll lead i'll i'll lead us into this point by saying i think that emma stone's greatest preparation for this role in her entire career um was easy a Interesting. I think I think Easy A was the best preparation she could get for this role um, in in a very long career that she's <laughs> had um, with with some notable performances. I think Easy A is the film that most typifies um, you know what's going on in the favorite, um, and that is essentially it's just a it's it it could it really could be viewed as like a high school uh, you know comedy of uh, you know hierarchy like like Easy A. Uh, like like Mean Girls, it's a very very screwed up, very uh, <laughs> dark spin on it. But at the end of the day, it boils down to these uh, these characters in a social setting um, who have to um, overcome and contend with uh, elements of their social status to gain the the immaterial currency of popularity um in a social setting yeah i I hadn't even thought about it that much in terms of like the plots of those two movies because i i mean i totally agree with the point that you're making i i guess when i when i initially like wrote my review i was like i i thought i I just thought more birdman because her character in birdman just like has a little bit more of a darkness behind her and of course uh, course. and, and 
obviously like this character is turns into something much different than what you is she is which what she is when you first see her in the movie and you kind of come to learn that she has like this more uh machiavellian side to her if you will and i mean and, like, there's a lot of scheming going on in easy a but it's still like large i haven't I haven't watched that movie in a few years i really like it but it, it's it seems like it keeps it more like that character has a more upbeat tone while obviously there's like a conflict later on and she has sometimes it's not as happy like as a person herself she is more uh she, she's just a, like a better person i would say than uh, right. her, her character here so that was what of i course. harken back to but it is kind of funny that you can draw parallels to this, like this movie that takes place in the early 18th century to like uh, a high school movie from the aughts <laughs> right right of course though you have to recognize that easy a is largely a reinterpretation of yeah, the scarlet, scarlet letter yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. which you know as a historical work Same time even though it's yeah. about 100 years later but and i mean it's takes place in uh what is today america too right right yeah, yeah. So, so there's some differences but that um that sort of baroque you know arcane element of um you know maybe of some staginess of some um you know some uh and, and when i say staginess because i know i've said it a couple times what i'm referring to is very specifically uh, a connection between um you know a screenplay or, or work of film and something that you would see on stage hmm. um or something that you would see acted out in a traditional theater theater manner um and uh so so to me um you know i drew that parallel with easy a because of the setting um because of the you know the kind of uh plot intricacies that we get but also because i know one minute ago i'm saying that these characters are um you know that they're they're reversing gender norms and things but they are still acting so childish um (laughs) in a way to the point where they're using real major world conflicts as social currency in their interpersonal interactions Emma Stone doesn't care about the war in France. What she cares about is getting the favoritism of Queen Anne. And she's willing to use a war and people's lives and and the well-being of an entire kingdom Mm -hmm. um, as a tool, you know, as as something to be – I think she even says that at one point. I think she says it to Robert Harley. I think she says to Nicholas Holt, um, you know, I don't care about your stupid war. Like – Right. It's uh, it, I, that's what I was saying. Like, it's just kind of fun how they're able to like Lanthimos and the writers are able to just kind of show what they really think about these people by just like having them treat these like like you said major conflicts so flippantly. And uh, yeah. even though at the same time, like we still like get the full rundown of like all the implications and Sarah's husband's even off there and they really could care less about him at the same time, even though he's on the, he's on the front lines of battle and just right, like, yeah. so th- just the, 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 the tone with which they're able to discuss these things says a lot about them, regardless of all the other crazy shit that happens, whether it be rabbits hopping around or throwing fruit at naked dudes or, or anything like that. There's like all these more, um, overt, uh, examples of just, uh, how, uh, just how absurd all of these people actually are, but then it's captured in smaller moments and just like them talking about their day-to-day business also. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, the, the, the scene of, uh, Nicholas Holt, you know, was Robert Harley and, and the rest of his compatriots throwing rotten fruit at this naked guy again, reminded me so much of a film like easy a, or, you know, a high school film, 
you know, the girl, it's, it's so, it's so typical in a way. The girl walks to the boys locker room and they're all in there, you know, in their underwear, you know, mm. tormenting the one fat kid. And it's like, um, you know, and, and, and they go, they go from that immediately to having a rather serious conversation. Except these are like uh, the, like the Lords of like England and super exactly. important people. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so, and it's, so it's and like even more ridiculous than high school kids doing crazy stuff. Right. And there's layers to it too, because, and this is something I don't know at what point you want to get to this, but obviously there's a lot of context to this film, um, discussing the modern, the, the current political climate, um, discussing current social issues. I found so I thought you know that that reflection of that as being um, you know these these this, this stupid boys doing stupid things um, and and largely going unpunished you know for their behavior um, you know that that played into that element of of modern politics and the modern commentary really well. Interesting. Well, I mean, if you, if you want, you can, you can definitely elaborate more on that. I hadn't really thought if we were going to do like a spoiler section for this movie, but I might just like, I might just cut it off after that then. Uh, but, um, cause I, yeah, I think you can get into that without spoiling a few other plot points of this movie that we've somehow, uh, been able to avoid to this point. <laughs> so, uh, when you say that, like, what was the best example that you kind of made, drew those modern parallels, uh, to the, to the front of your mind? Um, you know, I think any movie that comes out nowadays where the leading political figure in the movie is a uh, an obstinate, loud, angry person, uh, you're obviously going to get parallels to the current um, you know political situation in the United States. Which is interesting because um, I just saw where apparently filming was supposed to begin on this movie in spring 2016, but it got pushed to March 2017. So it's kind of funny yeah. that, you, that you say that, but it, it certainly fits. Yeah, and I mean, I I don't know, you know, how intentional it is, or well, if it the, if it really this leader is. Leader plays timely. with bunnies. Our leader watches cable television. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and I mean, there's there's all these 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 elements like that. But again, um, you know, things like uh, war as a as a um, you know as a social currency. Mm-hmm. Nobody really, uh, besides Robert Harley, I'd say, uh, and even really Robert Harley to an excuse me, Robert Harley to an extent doesn't really care about the war um all these political figures are using people's lives and people's uh you know existences for their own ends you know robert harley really only cares about the political unrest within the country and his constituents getting angry at him um and uh, you know rachel weiss only cares about about uh you know, power yeah. and you know position within court and um you know you balance that against something like like uh, w, you know, another film um, that I could draw a parallel to as a, as a sort of a courtroom, uh, a, a courtier rather, uh, drama, uh, I, and all these personalities, and how you know we have this central conflict, but nobody is actually approaching the central central conflict head on. Everybody's got their own angle for approaching this conflict, and um, you know I think that's still something that holds up in politics today. That's that's a criticism of you know, politics that, that, I, that to a degree Yorgos Lanthimos has even talked about before, although he's discussed it, I would say, more within the context of Greek politics okay. um, from his home yeah. country. And I guess but, they've had their own whole set of issues the last 10, 15 years. Right. But in, in a lot of ways, their, their issues preempted ours. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were dealing with, uh, you know, Golden Dawn, a fascist party being elected to power years before, uh, you know, everything going on in the United States. Right. I think... 
maybe this movie isn't as much of a statement as it is an observation um, about those things. But, you know, I think it's I think it makes it makes an observation about those. I would say from a social perspective, it's definitely making a statement about women in in power structures. Um, and it's not the only film to do it this year, um, but I do think it's the best one to do it. I think, uh, you know, um, Assassination Nation and Suspiria both dealt with similar themes. Hmm. But um, to me, the favorite just did an incredible job of really getting down and dirty and examining uh, women in power structures and how, uh, you know, there is there has been and there continues to be internalized misogyny in places where women hold power. Um, you know, this, this observation, the sort of sad and terrible observation that in places where women hold power over each other, there, there does exist a tendency for them to use it in terrible, terrible misogynistic ways against each other. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Unfortunately to, tear each other down and i mean and here your point is well taken that you made about the misogyny that might be ever present but here i mean the nicholas holt character tries to not to little to no avail really to actually try and exert some kind of influence over the woman in the movie and he's i mean he's constantly there just kind to uh plead his case but it it often kind of just falls on deaf ears and they do what they want anyway uh they're able to maybe exert a little more control over Anne because she is so uh, physically weak and a little more uh, uh, persuadable, but for the most part, like the women do have the control and the power, and they don't really um, let the let the men have any of it. But they 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 certainly eat away at each other. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, it's this you know the theory of the glass ceiling and the glass the glass cliff. Mm. The idea that when when things go wrong, women are often the first to go. Um, you know, this idea that, that we see play out a lot in modern times with CEOs and heads of state, um, where, uh, for example, in the UK currently, uh, ongoing, uh, this whole thing happened with Brexit. Um, and that's a really reductive way to phrase that, but, um, uh, you know, there was years of toil and torment and then Brexit happened, um, on the rather misguided firing or, uh, you know, firing off of David Cameron, who, you know, said, well, you know what, if you guys want Brexit, then we'll hold a vote and we'll do it. <laughs> uh, and they held the vote and they did it. Um, and David Cameron promptly quit. And Theresa May was put, <laughs> was put in his place to take all of the blame for all of the bad things that yeah. were going to happen. Um, and so I think, you know, the favorite sort of plays with that idea that there are these women in power and they're so close to the ledge. <laughs> um, and you know in this environment, if anything goes wrong, uh, they're going to be blamed. And I mean that we see that happen with Emma Stone ratting out Rachel Weiss's character at the end. Um, right. And so it's, uh, you know, in that way it was a comedy uh, and it was a tragedy too. Um, I think it's a tragedy because it 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 says, uh, you know, maybe not explicitly, but it says, um, are things really that different today that we wouldn't 
uh, have a power structure wherein people would still exert these influences and still uh, view women as expendable, um, you know, even other women viewing them as expendable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think it's, it's I, I appreciate you like putting it in that manner because I honestly had not thought a ton about those those modern parallels but it, it, it gives the movie like even more meaning to me but at the same time these are very serious issues and i think it's all the more impressive that like he's he's they're able to convey that convey all of that and still have what is really a rightly rightlessly funny movie uh and i and i, I want to move into just say here here's a go away now if you don't want to have some of the other specific plot points spoiled for you um but it's obvious that elijah and i highly recommend this movie and um if you want to go watch it and come back and listen to the rest of the discussion feel free to do that i'll timestamp the podcast uh but yeah so here's your fair warning jump off now or uh, fast forward ahead if you don't want to have other stuff spoiled but i want to get into the rest of this movie and uh we 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 somehow did avoid talking about the fact that like the very large part of this plot is the um, is the lesbian relationship between Anne and Sarah, and mm-hmm. subsequently Abigail and Anne? Abigail and Anne, and for, uh, I guess in some of the light research I've done on Wikipedia, which is I, what I always like to say is, you know, it's true because it's Wikipedia. Uh, I guess the, a lot of the uh, the uh, lesbian relationships that were are portrayed in this movie, I guess, are something that is more implied throughout history, and is not something that's like 100 percent known as fact. But they decided to kind of go down that rabbit hole for this movie. And uh, what did you think of the choice to make that such a prominent? part of the story and how they were able to use those this whole uh star-crossed or uh interchangeable lovers storyline to Hmm. further this uh further this plot um yeah i like that star-crossed interchangeable lovers (laughs) (laughs) um in in history there's a lot of talk about sex in relationship to power because uh you know of how how much it does play a role (laughs) in power um you know sex is something that can bring a powerful person to their knees kind of thing you know i uh, I hate to you know get into to platitudes here but i think that is uh you know something that has been well tread in fiction and in history Mm -hmm. um and i think it was a it was an interesting inclusion um and while i don't want to say it was necessary i also don't think that necessity is is you know is is something that every film needs to have for every element. Um, so I think it was it was a very interesting inclusion, um, and I, and like you said, it, it's based a lot on rumors, um, and and we see them kind of cover their tracks in the movie where uh, you know at the end, even after Rachel Weisz threatens to reveal their relationship, she does at the end of the day destroy her. Uh, yeah, you know, documentation of yeah. their relationship. Um, but the Duchess of Marlborough was a weird, was a real person. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was one of Queen Anne's biggest defenders, um, in history. She, she's one of the, one of the, one of the few people I will say, um, who we have, uh, you know, extensive notes from who said, um, uh, that the, that the queen was a truly, you know, um, nice person. I think it kind of uh, this idea of their lesbian relationship. I think it just feeds into that, into the notion of um, you know the, the childishness of everything that's going on. That there are so many great and terrible things going on in the world, and what's 
going on in probably the most important chamber of the you know entire palace is largely just teenage preoccupations um and that's not to say that their sexuality is a is something you know it's like a phase or whatever that's not what i'm saying yeah what i'm saying is that um you know uh it's there to both uh to show also that these women are um you know it's a good way to show that these women are uh you know really interdependent on each other uh, not necessarily on anybody else. You know, a, a, a love triangle is always a good way to portray that in film. Um, you know, the closed offness of a, of a group of relationships. Well, also, I'd say a lot of times movies of this time, the women are largely defined by the men in their lives. And mm-hmm. it's just a different way of doing that because you don't often see same sex relationships like that in period pieces like this. So it just, it's just a different kind of dynamic in general from what you would normally see from any kind of British costume drama or comedy, whatever you want to call this movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, um, and you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of really strange symbolism in the film. And I don't, I don't believe that any of it is ill intentioned, you know, the sort of this idea that, that Anne can't give birth to a real child the only children that she can maintain are bunnies, you know, and, um, you know, there's definitely something of a, of a, of a relationship between that and this idea that, you know, her, her, um, clandestine lesbian relationships are, you know, there's something intertwined there, but I would say that it's more, um, it, it more feeds into the tragedy of it than it does into the, into the statement of it, um, that I think, uh, you know, the, this idea that she can't, she can't continue her family is, is a tragedy. Uh, and it's not because, you know, it's not for lack of trying, but it's this idea that, you know, her lesbian, um, you know, romance is her true self. Mm-hmm. And it's a, the tragedy is that she can't be honest to that. Um, on top of you know, the fact that she's had all of this other tragedy already in life. Right, exactly, of course. Um, and so the, the tragedy that she can't be honest to that plays out in her obsession with uh, leaving things behind, leaving castles and palaces and baubles and clothing and bunnies, mm-hmm. um, her only children. So, Yeah, no, it's – I mean it's it's interesting to think about. I mean I – I think I think it certainly is. I like the way you put it, and that it's kind of twofold, and that this um, their their decision to kind of uh, give these characters these, um, or at least in, for the sake of this version, uh, I guess assume these rumors are true and have them be um, at least uh, attracted to attracted to women. It obviously it serves the whole entire horse chase that you have between Abigail and Sarah throughout, but it. I, it's it's when you talk about when you put it in those terms. I mean, we we already discussed just how how pathetically funny Anne is um, in the first half of the movie, but we, it was kind of already sad that her, um, her illness obviously gets worse throughout, but you're seeing her um, just have to, deal with, have to deal with that. But on top of that, you learn about her tragedy. It's a really good scene where she actually reveals all that stuff to Abigail. But then on top of that, you, once you do learn the full extent of her relationship with Sarah, you realize you've had, she's had even more weighing on her throughout the time leading up to the events of this movie and during the events of this movie and is already probably a little bit of a, a kooky personality to begin with and 
uh, with with some level of depression there too, and uh, right. there's just a lot going on to that that character. Yeah, in this movie, um, it, it I I would say that the setting is um, very much past the prime of the of the main character or main characters, maybe um, multiple. Uh, you know, by the time this movie starts, we're past the acts of acts of union. We're past um, you know the the high points of things like. You know the, you know the, the the great era of two-party politics in in uh, this new United Kingdom. You know, we're really we're past all of that, um, and we're really at just the you know we're past the death of her husband. At the point that we're at when the story starts, it, there's really only downward to go from <laughs> from the start of the story. Um, you know, and, and that is something that really only people who are familiar with the history would maybe pick up on immediately. Mm-hmm. But I do think it becomes pretty clear, uh, you know, early on that we're not going to see any great, uh, you know, uplifting, you know, rebirth or anything, anything here, really. It's just going to be, yeah, uh, you know, downhill. Sure. We've, we've talked a lot about just like how both how funny this is and how how. Um, how this movie does have a really interesting message that has some modern resonance at the same time, but we really haven't talked that much about the filmmaking itself. And um, he, he, they, they shot this at a place called Hatfield house, which I guess is, is obviously a um, a big country house in England, but uh, man, they really shoot the hell out of that house and they do some uh, pretty interesting stuff with whether it be uh Warners or Fish Islands, that kind of thing. Uh, what what was some of the more standout moments for you in that regard? Yeah, I mean, uh, the stuff with the Fish Islands is very uh, that's a, that's a very Kubrickian touch. Um, Stanley Kubrick really loved um, Fish Islands, and and interestingly enough, the one film that I compared this to at the beginning of this podcast, yeah, Barry Lyndon, um, Barry Lyndon, which I actually haven't seen. I watched a lot of Kubrick in the last year, and that was one. It's just like, man, I gotta like carve out a big Saturday just for oh, that because yeah. it's like three hours long. It's a beast of a film, but I will say this: there's nothing really with Fisheye in that movie. Um, oh, that movie, huh. this movie is very tight and very wide. Um, there's not really any, um, you know, of those of those kind of Kubrickisms in it. But the Fisheye is Kubrick nonetheless. I mean, that that's Clockwork Orange. That's, um, you know, he used the the Fisheye lines extensively in Clockwork Orange, and I think it's because. You know, it's very obviously disorienting. That's not how humans see the world. We we don't see the world through this warped, uh, you know, warped edge perspective. So to see that play out um, in this movie, I think adds to a couple of things. It adds to the sort of eerie, disconcerting sense of environment within the film. Uh, the 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 entire palace of uh, you know of Hatfield House, you know the the palatial building itself feels even larger because we're seeing it in a way that is definitely meant to make it look larger than life. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those, those elements too. Um, I, I love the use of slow motion in this movie. It's used a few times and it's almost always used for comedic effect and it's just great. Um, the duck race, Oh God, uh, yeah. the duck racing scene early in the film, um, where everything is going in slow motion, even the dialogue of you know people shouting at each other in these <laughs> in these you know super low drawn out tones, like it's um you know slow motion is used to make things cinematic. That's you know it, so, they teach you that. So why not make a duck school. race cinematic? 
Right, exactly. Um, you know, if we're, if we're using slow motion to make things cinematic and to draw attention to things, how would the most, what would be the most Yorgos Lanthimos way to use that? And I think it would be to make something cinematic that is, you know, maybe has only the very slightest, smallest sliver of inherent cinematicism to it. You know, using uh, slow motion in a fight, in a, you know, a war scene, it's, I, I, you know, it's not bad, but it's not particularly creative either right. because those things are already cinematic. You know, they're already things that we expect to have bombast visually. Um, a duck race, when you really think about it, yeah, I guess there is some cinematicism to it. You know, it's a race. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but it's, not, um, it's not something that, that immediately springs to mind. And I would say that that largely plays as a parallel to the rest of the film, this idea that we're turning a lens onto things that are, you know, so, uh, you know, absurd maybe at the surface level. When you dig down and there really is something sort of sinister and, and uh, you know, something really intriguing going on, something thrilling, just like a duck race, you know. It's ducks, but it's still a race. So. Yeah, I don't, and I don't have a ton to elaborate to say on it. But I thought that the dance was very fun. The one, the that was really cool. I don't really know right. what else to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just I love that it's, you know, it's a mating ritual. Mating rituals on film are always fun to dissect the many many ways that you can do a mating ritual. Um, you know, to contrast that to, um, for example, uh, I'm trying to think of something good you can contrast it to. You know, there's there's a scene in um, there's a scene in this movie called um, the Thomas Crown Affair that's that's been parodied a million times. It's a scene of the titular Thomas Crown playing chess with this woman, and there's all these quick cuts of like these really you know like oh the pawns look seductive you know they look like nipples or something. I think oh. they make fun of it in Austin Powers at huh. one point even. Interesting. Um, but, you know, it's like turning a chess match into a mating ritual. Um, so I, I just love when films take a different approach to that. And, yeah, dance is always going to probably have some inherent, you know, sexuality to it. But this was just such a peacocking affair. Like, yeah. this is this big, ostentatious dance film with fish eyes and a one take. Like, you couldn't get any more ridiculous than that. <laughs> um, and the, the way that it bounces between, like, these very stately, um, you know, traditional volta like dances and stuff that looks decidedly modern um yeah for like i don't know enough about dance to explain all the steps they're doing but there are some elements of it that are like oh if you just put this people in like a break dancing scene in a regular movie made in 2018 i wouldn't have thought it twice <laughs> right exactly so so yeah so i mean i thought that was a that was great um it's just really uh zany um, in a way that doesn't distract, I feel like, from the rest of the movie. So no, it was an, it was like a nice little aside for sure. Um, I feel like we did already talked a little bit about how um, how you know uh, Sarah ends up like you know falling out of favor with like the the letters and everything. Even if she does destroy him, you know, like she she threatens Anne, and that's almost like um, kind of like an ultimate final straw. But the what do you, what did you think about the the note that this movie ends on? Because that that was certainly uh, something that felt a piece with like other Lanthimos works. Right. Yeah. I mean, it definitely takes a very, um, I don't want to say necessarily bizarre, but just a very, um, uh, elemental turn at the end. Um, and I think, you know, there's the, there's the fairly surface level element, which, 
you know, I would say most people probably picked up on, which is that, you know, this is this is Abigail's reminder that no matter how high she gets, she is still, you know, uh, subservient to uh, a greater authority um, and that favoritism may, you know, it's this idea of, you know, well, don't, you know, be careful what you wish for. Right. Get it. And then you're going to, you know, you're not going to be happy with it. Overplayed her hand and um, didn't think it all the way through. Right. Right. Um, but I think there's even a step you can go further than that with the bunnies, which they reintroduced there very obviously. Uh, the rabbits, you know, they have them hopping around the screen, superimposed over this final <laughs> image of Emma Stone, um, like, you know, crowding the screen over. And I think it's, uh, you know, this, this, we get this notion that the bunnies, the rabbits are not only uh, Queen Anne's children, but they're as numerous and as populated and as ever moving as favorites in the court. And that these bunnies represent just as much Anne's children as they do Anne's mercurial favoritism. Um, and that, you know, these rabbits are just constantly shifting and moving um, and never settle down. And uh, that was a wonderfully dark way to end the movie and be like, <laughs> this is going to keep happening. Um, you know, there's no end to this. As long as you have a, a leader that's like as susceptible to the, to the, um, to the charms or wills of other people, certainly. Uh, right. And I, I was just kind of happy. Like I, I, as that was happening, I'm like, Oh my God, is he going to end the movie here? Like, I hope he ends the movie here. Cause for a second, I thought they were going to want to go back and like, give us a little bit more resolution with respect to, uh, Sarah and, I was like, I don't really need that at this point. I mean, I'm sure I can go look up what happened to her. And this would be like a much more Yorgos type of note to end on just uh, with the absurdity of these rabbits being superimposed over it, which is like in another different type of movie, some other thing in place of rabbits there might feel totally normal. And here it just feels like a final nice absurd note to go out on while at the same time giving you something dark when you're actually looking at the human characters right there. And I just thought I was so glad I was like worried we we're going to get another 10 minutes ready to jump around and touch base with all the other characters. And I was like very happy that that was just where it left off. Cause I thought that was like really, really fitting for everything that had led up to it. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I thought it was, uh, it was a very tight and succinct ending. And I, I think that has as much to do with Yorgos Lantimos as it has to do with um, Yorgos Mavropsaridis, who is uh, that's that's the editor ah. uh, who works on all of Yorgos Lantimos's films. I just think it was a, it was a wise decision from an editing perspective, like you said, to uh, to not draw it out, um, to cut at that moment, just at that at the zenith of that scene when we see. We see Abigail. We've seen Anne. We've seen the bunnies. Then we've seen then we've seen Abigail with the rabbits. Like we've seen all these elements, and they've all built. And the sound comes, you know, and, and is like the, the little clittering, <laughs> you know, glattering feet, you know, bouncing around. And it builds up, and then it just cuts to black. And <laughs> then we get that that classical music score back in there, and it's just, uh, you know, it's excellent. Yeah, and, um, for sure. I think uh, I think Mavrop Saturdays understands uh, Yorgos Lantimos's vision um, and I think it's a great example of his ability to execute that right there at the end yeah any other odds and ends to discuss uh, that uh, we didn't touch on I uh, do you have any thoughts on uh, Joe Alwyn who I 
don't really know if it ever gotten any like really been in any really truly acclaimed movies uh he'd kind of become a thing just by people trying to make him a thing but good for him to get for getting in a movie like this and i don't know um yeah i mean i thought he was really good in billy lynn's halftime walk i did not um, see that i was excited for it up until i heard that it wasn't good and then i didn't make it the movie itself isn't great but there's um and i think a lot of it has to do with the way it was executed visually um that the whole high frame rate yeah. thing, you know, if it's being played back at 48 frames per yeah, second. So I guess Ang Lee kind of, yeah, I guess Ang Lee kind of discovered him, though, so that was, like, his first thing, right? Right. I mean, he was great in that film, especially oh, the scenes okay. that take place um, during during the war. Okay. Um, there's a couple of scenes that are just really, really, really visceral, um, and uh, he, he, you know, handles it very well. He's in Boy um, Race 2 in a role that's pretty underwritten, I thought, and yeah. I the movie fully addresses the storyline he's involved in as well as it could. Yeah, um, Operation Finale wasn't great either. I think um, he, he he looks the part for Operation Finale though, <laughs> right? Uh, of, of, of a young aspiring Nazi, uh, so that certainly fit. Uh, um, but yeah, no, that, that, I I thought he was he was a pretty pretty fun presence here for a guy who I hadn't necessarily thought of as being fun in the stuff I had seen him in. But that was just one of the other notable supporting performances we hadn't mentioned, so I want to give him a shout out. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I don't know. It was. Uh, I mean, I hope it seems like this film is going to do pretty well, and it might get all three of these actresses' uh, acting nominations. Uh, it'd be all well deserved. Um, but yeah, uh, I I don't know. I just wanted to kind of make that statement there. I hope it does just as well at awards as it could. You know, I guess the lobster got a screenplay nomination and Dogtooth got a foreign film nomination and that's about it so this could be a big breakthrough for uh for your ghost in that regard yeah i mean come on look a movie that has a single long take static shot of a man stroking a duck uh in fisheye i mean like how can you not love that movie the, like, the, i think just... that's the, the best uh that that, sh- that should be the blurb on the next poster they put out <laughs> um, uh but yeah so i I, th- I think we pretty well covered it it's it's uh, it's, it's it is your favorite movie of the year to date right elijah That's yeah it. at this moment and uh you know moving forward i don't know how many other things really will be able to unseat it um, yeah i guess you haven't seen but beale street and there might not be another uh high candidate aside from that to do it yeah, I mean, I have to see Shoplifters, you know, a couple odd-end foreign films, but, uh, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not going to lie, I knew going into this film that I was probably going to enjoy it, given the pedigree of the people yeah. who worked on it, and the, the setting, um, which, you know, def- definitely falls very specifically within my wheelhouse, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I would say it exceeded expectations, so, you know, with that disclaimer that there was a little bit of bias going in, um, I thought it was better than, than anything I could have hoped for. Um, I was expecting it, you know, maybe it'll make my top five. <laughs> um, I did not expect it to be a film that I thought was the best of the year. So, yeah, well, there you go. That's a ringing endorsement from someone that definitely watches more movies than me. So, uh, that, that should tell you And anyone that listens to the podcast knows I watch a lot of them. So, uh, and, and I highly recommend this movie to you. I think it's, I, I don't have my rankings in front of me, but it's, if it's not in my top 10, it's close to it. So definitely worth checking out if you're with your family over the week, over the holidays, uh, maybe you don't see it with all your family members, depending on their sensibilities. But I mean, I think uh, certain ones could certainly get something out of it. But now I, I want to move on to uh, move on to Roma, uh, another movie that's um, obviously been really well critical acclaimed. It's the newest movie from Alfonso Cuarón, the the Mexican filmmaker. Who the last time we heard from him, he was um, making a movie in Gravity that got a bunch of Oscar nominations, including a a win for him for best director. But he's made a He's obviously been around, been around for a while and done movies of all different scales. You know, I mean, leading up to this, he had done Gravity, and before that, I guess 
I don't. Did he have anything between Gravity and Children of Men? I think at that point he was mostly focused on producing stuff. Right. So um, it's like he went from like Harry Potter, yeah. Prison of Azkaban, to Children of Men, to Gravity, to now what is like a very different kind of movie and it shows just how versatile he is a filmmaker he's made roma which is semi-autobiographical about a family in the roma which is a i guess a neighborhood in mexico city in the early 70s and told mostly from the point of view of their housekeeper slash nanny cleo who is a young 20 something woman and it i mean i don't really want to talk like i mean it's a pretty open-ended movie in terms of the plot and that you're just kind of following her around and she's um, interacting with this family, but also kind of going about her own life and living her own life. But you're at the same time, she's kind of going back and forth between being in the house and doing her own thing and goes through a lot of stuff. I don't, I don't really just want to like just ramble on and explain the plot all at once because I don't think the plot is necessarily even the most important thing about this movie per se. Cause I mean, it's not like the tightest plot in the, in you know what I mean? It's just mm-hmm. a lot of stuff happens, but it's not like yeah. a traditional plot in that sense. Um, I, I guess I, where I want to start Elijah is just asking you, like, I mean, we're, it's, it's a very personal movie. And I think what's kind of cool is that I, at the same time, it it's really personal. It feels, in some ways, like I think more people should connect with it, uh, in that it feels universal in other ways too. And I'm wondering what was kind of your big takeaway when you saw when you saw this movie. As uh, we both, as you say, we both saw it in theaters too. Everyone's going to be able to watch it on Netflix at at the point at which you're listening to this. But I mean, there are some benefits to seeing in, in the theater experience as well. So I mean, did you have a big takeaway from this movie? Because as I'm saying, like plot and story might not even be the most important thing when you're talking about a movie that is made so technically well you know the the film this film could probably be best described you know less as a narrative film and maybe as a as a philosophical text and i i I know that sounds pretentious in a way but it it, there is a a tradition for it within coron's work i think this film revisits the philosophy of movies like children of men and ito mama tambien it revisits them um, and just looks at the philosophy rather than philosophy within the context of a setting or a narrative. Um, I think well, this what, film... what, what do you specifically mean by that? Because uh, me, I'm when I think E2, E2 Mama Tambien and like Children of Men, I think like, man, these are like, I, I could maybe think of a couple common threads, but at the same time, they're pretty different movies. Yeah. Um, so the, the films um, are all connected to me through this um this kind of maybe transgressive is the right word maybe not um view on uh eastern philosophy um (laughs) i don't want to take too sharp of of a turn here but i mean i don't know if you stayed through the credits of the movie um i don't know if you stayed all the way through i don't think i did actually um at the end of the credits um you know the the so I don't want to jump straight to spoiling anything here, but the final shot of the movie shows um, basically just a plane flying overhead. Um, I saw and that's that. How the movie ended. At least that. Right. Um, and then the credits roll over that static shot of okay. just the sky. Uh, and right at the end of the credits, before the screen cuts to black, as the, as the credits are done rolling, the text appears in the bottom corner and says "Shanti, Shanti, Shanti," which um, you know in Sanskrit is you know it means be calm Hmm. um you know find tranquility um and this idea of inner peace um and that's you know it's it's 
Buddhist, it's Hindu, it, it appears in a couple of, you know, Sikh, it's, it's Jainist, it appears in, it appears in several different um, Eastern philosophies and Eastern religions, but it's something that is in all of his movies, um, whether it's explicitly like in Children of Men, where um, one character is literally, you know, praying Shanti, Shanti, Shanti over a dead body at one point in the movie, uh. Um, or whether it's in Itamama Tambien, where it's less explicit and it's more slipped in through dialogue of, you know, people telling other people to be calm and things like that. And so I think, I think this movie is sort of Quaron's personal introspective examination of that philosophy, something that he's clearly lived with for a long time. Um, and I think it's him examining where that philosophy comes from within his own life. Um, or maybe um, within the within the life within within the you know the shared uh, lineage of his people and of the country that he comes from, and so to me that's why I call this you know a philosophical text. It's not necessarily a story. We're not we're not meant to focus on the story. We're meant to focus on the way that the interactions in the story. Um, make the characters feel and the way that it changes their worldview and the way that it changes their being. Yeah, we're not going to do a spoiler section because I want to talk about something that happens at the end based on kind of what you just said. And, well, people, you can go watch this on Netflix really easily. There's no excuse not to watch this movie. We we both recommend it. If you really don't want to have anything spoiled for you, you can go away now. But I'm not going to, like, wait till 15 minutes into this to start spoiling something. But, um I think what you said really is interesting about like the character interactions and how it kind of shapes people's worldviews. Because honestly, this movie really like I, I enjoyed I enjoyed it for its technical feat and 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 everything that he pulls off with just everything going on in this movie. But it really actually clicked into place for me like at the very end almost um, at the end of what is maybe one of my favorite scenes of the year when she is uh, when she is rescuing the kids from the water and she finally um she she finally lets out uh right after that she saved them that she didn't want the baby to be born at all mm-hmm. and uh i should say i mean obviously she's really close to being a nanny for all the kids in this family and but she gets pregnant at one point and her child is stillborn uh but i i kind of remember thinking as i'm watching that scene like man this was really hard to watch but at the same mm-hmm. time she does not seem quite as upset as i thought she should have been and even if we're supposed to think she's upset the movie didn't necessarily like set that up perfectly anyway because we don't see her actually talking that much about what her thoughts about motherhood are her thoughts about the baby she's upset that the father of the baby doesn't want to be involved somewhat but Mm -hmm. that that would be understandable and i didn't think we necessarily spent enough time with her to that point to necessarily like feel devastated for her if that's what we were supposed to feel and they certainly didn't make it that apparent on her face after the baby was born it was more just like mental exhaustion regular upsetness Mm -hmm. but not like oh my god i lost my baby and i was like huh i don't know if the if that's what the movie was building towards i don't really know if it did that that well and then uh she has this moment though after she saves the kids from the high tide and she lets out in exasperation i didn't really want the baby to be born it the the whole movie finally actually kind of clicked into place for me because uh i've watched it twice now and it became even more apparent on my second viewing that she is around this house and around this family and happens to be in the right place at the right time on at least five different occasions just to see like how tough the mom has it 
it's and her name's Sophia. The, the the father of the family goes out goes out of town for a business trip for a, a week, but it becomes apparent rather quickly to the audience and to the wife, but not to the kids, that he is not he, he is he is not coming back, and he has just is, isn't returning to the family for what, whether or not he's interested in other women or not so much interested in his family or some combination of all that. And Cleo gets like several different hints of that being the case. Like walks in on the other the the couple fighting, and hears the mom saying several different things at other points. And she, she I mean, she's around this family enough, and she sees how much work it takes us to take care of these kids, and how the mom has just about every single privilege in the world at her disposal. I mean, maybe money gets a little tighter, and there are some references to that as it goes on. But I think she is, uh, even as she's pregnant, she's probably realizing as she keeps hearing these snippets of, of this family's life, like man, this is this is a lot. And this is not an easy thing for even the people that have all the privileges in the world, which I don't. And it kind of made sense to me at that point in the movie. Like, man, like she was probably pretty content with her her place in life. And her worldview is largely shaped by what she's seeing these people go through. And when I saw just how crazily relieved she actually was at the end, I'm like, man, like everything we're seeing about her life kind of led up to that moment in the movie. And she was pretty content and maybe she thought she, she she even if it wasn't the most glamorous life she was living she did have some kind of like peace and contentedness at that point early in the movie before things really get going and that, i think that was kind of her to me it was almost like she finally has that realization at the end that like man i i wasn't ready for that kind of life and i'm actually pretty happy with how things are right and i mean i th- i think i would extend it even a step further to be at that point um you know she's she's kind of just accepted life placidly you know she's sort of got this you know just a glow to her like she's very simple um and you know life just sort of happens around her and that includes the bad things Mm -hmm. um and those things that you mentioned but also the things going on in the world i mean the protests and the you know the the very violent violent political interactions occurring in the world around her um and I think it plays into this element of things that we even see in, in the world today where people uh, in our generation specifically are saying, we're not, I'm not going to have kids. Like this is not a world that I would bring kids into. Right. And so I think that that element uh, is definitely there too. You know, this, that she, you know, she doesn't want the baby because the baby is, you know, uh, it's not a world that she can, she can save them in. Right. She can't, you know, protect her children she can barely protect somebody else's kids from high tide, um, you know, and, and, and I think it, again, it speaks to the larger philosophical element within Shanti, you know, this idea of inner peace, you talk about, um, things being weights on your soul, um, and you have to release those weights by exclaiming them. And that's what she does. She, like, you know, this whole movie, she's gone you know, silent and just, yeah, she's held it all in, you know, experiencing things. And then she gets to that point where she's able to release it and able to remove that weight from her. And in a, in a sort of sad and dark way that mirrors the, her stillborn baby itself. She's carrying this weight for a large part of the movie, a physical weight, and it's lifted from her. Um, but it's not a relief when it's lifted from her because it's lifted against her will. Um, and it's not until she lifts that weight from her own soul, from her own existence that she is able to, you know, find that release until she comes to that realization that, 
not only, you know, did, did the universe not want her to have that baby, but she didn't want to have that baby either. Hmm. Well, so. I, man, well, I mean, we've just fully gone away on the, the movie to start and you give me <laughs> a whole, it, guys. Have a good night. And, and you give me a whole philosophy lesson. So we only, we have nowhere to go, but backward, but it's it certainly, I mean, it's kind of funny that you were able to explain it to me that way because I think it already kind of echoed a lot of what I thought without even knowing what that meant. So it's kind of cool that, like, I mean, I, I had all those thoughts and I kind of thought like, ah, oh, you know, she she already had her own inner peace kind of and had to kind of reexamine her whole life based on the events of this movie and kind of realized that she actually kind of was – not that she was unhappy before, but she had this realization after what would normally be a happy thing, just having a baby. She realized like she kind of liked what she had before and um, one of the things I don't think the movie loses sight of in uh, w- w- with this w- with the character of um, w- of Sophia is like I mean I think it's pretty interesting that like uh, they don't let they don't let you forget that she thinks she still thinks of Cleo as the help. I mean there are a couple um, there are a couple moments when she's not so nice to her, but at the same time it's a more complex relationship than that, and because they really do see her as a part of the family. And apparently Koran did. Um, did extensive interviewing of the woman that held the same position in his household growing up in preparation of this movie. Like it really is semi-autobiographical. And uh, it's interesting that like she, she does have like this other, we don't really see a whole lot of what her quote unquote home life is, but she is, I mean, well, wait, does she live on their premises? I I couldn't tell like if her and the other house person are living somewhere connected to their house. Um, Yeah. So Colonia Roma is a very, you know, La Roma is a very, very, uh, is a wealthy district yeah. of, um, of, of, of uh, Mexico City, or at least at the time when this film takes place, um, it's a wealthy district. And uh, so they have a very large property. I mean, they have a, they, they not only have a house, they have a hacienda in the traditional sense of the, of the word. You know, they have a, they have a, a, a palace essentially. I mean, with a courtyard and everything and an attached house for maids. Okay. So they, they are living there, but it's a one, it's separate in that manner. Um, mm-hmm. Two, she gets talked to like the help sometimes. Then, but like she's also like watching TV with the family, having a fun time, and they're happy to have her there. But then she has to get up to get them tea. Uh, but also, it's like she's worried that they're going to want to fire her because like she's pregnant. But they're actually like really nice about that, and they want to take care of her in that manner. And it's it's it, it's a fairly interesting relationship that she that she does have with them. But it it it, base, it really is her family, and you do get the sense that, like those kids obviously love her, but. Um, Sophia sees her as like something more than the help, but obviously not a full family member, but it seems like she's accepted that part of life. Like she and the other maid or whatever you want to title you want to give them, they, they do kind of like make fun of, uh, Sophia a little bit at one point, but they, it seems like she does value her value that family a lot. It's a, and and it's pretty interesting because I don't, I don't know if you quite have that, um, relationship with like any kind of, uh, American, American movies set in America that deal with, uh, that deal with maids or, um, people, uh, service people of that nature. It's, it's, it's not quite that same kind of familial, uh, tie that they might have to the family that employs them. Yeah. Um, and I, I really did like that element to, to, you know, to bring it to that of, um, how is in a sort of, you know, ethereal way, like she exists in a different world and the rest of the maids both in the house and in other houses exist in a different world and i mean that's something that they show uh in a visual metaphor where cleo goes to the rooftop at the end of the movie and and she goes to the rooftop earlier in the movie too and they they allude to it there and they you look out over the vista of the other rooftops 
and all you see is other maids. Hmm. It's only other maids, um, and it's like a different world. Um, and, and they even speak in a different language. Um, you know, the film is in Spanish, and it's also in Mixtec. It's also in the language yeah. spoken, you know, that, that combination of, um, of indigenous uh, dialects and ancient languages and Spanish. Um, and so it's, you know, there's this, this sort of, uh, not necessarily heaven and hell, but just these two, these two different universes that these characters exist in. Mm -hmm. Um, and Cleo is sort of the planeswalker able to, you know, pass between the realms with, with ease. Mm -hmm. Um, she's not just relegated to, um, you know, to one world or to the other. She is able to both, you know, have friends and, and live within that world of, you know, of, of, of other Mixtec speaking, uh, you know, housemaids. And she's also able to be part of the family, um, you know, and to be so integral as to almost fit in as another member when you see them all sitting on the couch and there's Cleo right there at the end of the couch hugging mm -hmm. one of the children. Um, yeah. So. No, yeah, it, it it is kind of funny and there there are moments where those where those worlds also collide in a way i would say where um at one point after um after i mean i guess it's trying to remember exactly the point at which it happens it might be once the mom has um uh, after uh one of the more tense moments when i think the mom has um scolded cleo for kind of eavesdropping or whatever but a little bit later then it, so it seems like they're at a moment where the, like she's just not feeling as kind towards her, but then I think it's after she, I think it's after she goes out and replaces the car that the dad had driven. Um, she she or might it's either then or when she wrecks the car trying to get into the garage because that's a it's a funny kind I don't know if it's a funny scene it's a interesting scene I don't know if you have more takes on that just the whole garage thing because it's very meticulously oh, yeah. shot the first time the dad goes into the garage mm -hmm. but she but I, what I was getting at though is that she she when she one of those two scenes and I'm, I wish I could remember which one it was I just watched it today but she she runs out in the garage and just hugs Cleo and just says like um, man it, it's just it's 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 harder for us and you always have to know that is something to that effect and yeah, that's that's when she comes in, when the mother comes in drunk at night and crashes the yeah, car into right, the wall. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah, she's still identifying with uh, Cleo in a way there. And it's kind of funny. You're saying she goes between those two worlds, but that's an example of them, in my opinion, kind of colliding a little bit and the mom identifying a little bit more with her and um, saying, like, look, it's 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 just going to – we gotta we got to fend for ourselves. You know, the, the woman uh, – it's just harder for women out there no matter of what socioeconomic status you are of. Right. And I mean, in a way, that is kind of what I believe what sort of prompts Cleo to go and track down Fermin, um, you know, the, the father to her daughter or to her. Sorry. to Wow. I just assumed a lot there. The father to Cleo's um, child, to Cleo's stillborn child. Um, what that sort of is what prompts her to go and track him down um, out in the middle of the, you know, the rural village. So there is definitely a you know an interplay of forces in that it you know has an effect. Things do affect each other between these two worlds. Mm -hmm. um, and there's other sort of you know uh, fabulous um, magical magical realist moments like that throughout the movie. Um, 
that you know like that and the fire yeah what's your what's your what's your take on the whole fire sequence because that was one of the things that like when i was watching i'm like i bet there's something i'm just not getting here because i would have been perfectly fine if this time had been spent elsewhere right i mean i think um you know it's just it's it's an examination that part is is a lot of an examination of just these different worlds um you know that whole sequence beginning with her arriving at the hacienda all the way through the end when they return home mm-hmm. um what we're seeing is just the this stark difference in their worlds um, yeah because she's taken by one of the other maids there to like another area where all the all the help are hanging out and right she's they're and, walking they're walking through this palatial estate while they do it right and you know we see the you know there's things like the dog's heads that have been mounted on the wall yeah that was actually like uh, i don't know if we're supposed to laugh at that but i laughed at that <laughs> oh no i definitely think we are i yeah. mean and this has got that absurd air to it and it's also making fun of you know those people it's making fun of you know how disconnected from reality these people are um that you, you think you can replace an animal by naming it the same thing like <laughs> uh, by naming another one the same thing and so um you know i think that that climaxes with just this guy's disconnection with reality as there's this fire going on and frankly i don't even know what the hell he's singing at that point you know <laughs> i don't know if he's singing the national anthem of sweden or what it's going you know like i don't know what's going on um but what he what's what's clear is that he's you know, not helping you know it was also another interesting example of that like just the different kind of classes of people that you're dealing with throughout was that the the kids at the table, the dinner scene, just one of the dinner scenes in their house at one point, they're arguing about American football. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if you remember, they're yeah. talking about like Baltimore and and, um, and the, uh, the Cowboys. Cowboys. Yeah. And I was like, huh. Like, I mean, I always, I, it's interesting that like, to think that like, I, even today, I, I assume in modern times, like, yeah, maybe some people in Mexico follow American football, but they're going to be more consumed with like football and i just didn't even think of that being a thing that like they would think about that much these days over the dinner table and in the 1970s to like actually have the the privilege and the access to be able to consume american football um that just kind of says something that those that those kids are able to be that conversant in something like that that just kind of shows what what kind of um privileged life they're leading right and i think it plays into this you know the greater theme of the desire to escape yeah um because you have these kids who clearly, as you stated, have the ability and the connection to this to the outside world, to the world at large, um, and they're so gleefully, childishly, naively content with just observing it, you know, of just talking about football and whatever. Whereas to even have the uh, the ability to touch that is so foreign to people like Cleo and Fermin mm-hmm. um, that Fermin has to result, resort to his this obsession with the movies with um you know with foreign movies and with you know with martial arts and things things that connect him to this outside world mm-hmm. um and to Cleo who really the only connection that she has to the outside world is you know to the world at large outside of Mexico city outside of Mexico is watching planes pass by overhead mm-hmm. you know in that final image of the movie with the plane passing by overhead You've talked. You've, you've you've touched on a lot of different images that this movie creates, and it, uh, I mean, it really is Caron's picture through and through, right? He edited and uh, shot it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And what they they shot it digitally in black and white, right? Which I mean, which I believe so, yeah. Which I was kind of striking to me. Like I'm not. 
I mean, I've gotten better to the point where I can like usually tell if something's like digital or on film, but I couldn't think of too many instances in which a movie made in like modern times in black and white wasn't shot on film. And I thought it gave the movie like an interesting look. Uh, Whether it be that or just the any other particular way that he moved the camera in this movie like was there was was there anything that stood out to you about that because i that was one thing that got a lot of attention coming into this movie was just the fact that like he was wearing every single hat yeah i mean it's it's interesting because this is the this is the second time in as much in 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 12 months that a director's done that yeah pta Um, last year Yeah, yeah, yeah paul thomas anderson did it for phantom thread um, and so, uh, you know, I don't want them to put me out of a job, but, but I think they're doing a good job with it. And I think Quaron does a great job with it. I think he shows, um, you know, his own eye as much as things that he's learned from the people he's worked with. Um, there's definitely some very Lubezki moments with the cinematography, but ultimately I think it's very unique to Quaron, um, you know, the way that he portrays it. It doesn't necessarily have that floating Emmanuel Lubezki camera style that, I think it's funny you use that word you know. floating because I mean the 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 one shot that stands out to me more than anything else is what I already talked about with that uh, with the water rescue scene at the end, but mm-hmm. that 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 was like one of the best shots of the year for me because I, I I feel like I've seen like more times than I can count a scene where someone shoots someone trying to rescue something or do something in the water where it's like it's a, it's a full out shaky cam type of thing where the thing's going underwater and then above water and then below water and you're not really following anything all that closely and these were not insignificant waves yet the camera is like steady that entire scene and moving with her and i mean i didn't know if like there's some kind of trick that he would have done to been able to do that but it's not like you can just simply stand a camera on the boat when there are waves that big and have the camera still be held that steady and i think it really was it really almost ratcheted up the tension in that scene because you're able to clearly you you know for a fact that like the that the kids aren't in view until they are Whereas, mm-hmm. like, if you were just, like, sitting behind her going up and down above and below sea level, like, you wouldn't actually, like, really have a sense of where the, where where you were in the water and just how deep she was going because you know she doesn't know how to swim. That's already been established, and so you're kind of worried. And this is a dark movie where uh, just 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes before the movie at that point, you'd watched a, a stillborn baby get CPR. So I'm not assuming at that point that the both of these kids are surviving or that she is because right. we, don't, we know she doesn't know how to swim, and these kids have already gotten themselves messed up. So, like, I just thought it was nice that they were to give us a wide shot that was so steady somehow – despite those rough waters and really give me a little bit of suspense as to whether or not all three of those people are going to make it out of that water. Yeah. And I mean, you asked how it's done. I mean, <laughs> you just got to buck up and do it. I mean, they just built it. They probably built a pier and put down some dolly tracks on it so that they could get that a makes, steady shot. Wow. Okay. I didn't know they would go yeah. that, 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 I guess that makes sense. Like that's how you would do it. I didn't even think about like building a pier, but that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. They would do that or they would use a crane, but I can't imagine a crane arm that long because they're, you know, 15, 20, 30 yards out into the water. I mean, that's that's pretty yeah. long for a crane arm. So I would say it was probably done by actually building uh, a pier to put a dolly on. But I mean, that, um, I don't know. That was really impressive. And I guess that it's more than just a guy moving a camera. That just takes a lot of like technical one-two to get a scene right, I guess. Uh, and that was yeah. that impressed me more than anything. But like, I mean, I backing up though. I mean, I really liked how. I, I think he probably did a lot of research, and I, from what I understand, I think tried to recreate his childhood home. And I just thought it was really impressive how they moved the camera around that house. I don't know if you have more specific uh, technical thoughts on that, but like I felt like I knew the geography of that house by the time we were done, which was pretty cool because, I mean, a lot of times you don't get that in movies. 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's very subtle. There's not a lot of, um, you know, ca- there's there's moments of great camera movement where the camera moves, you know, across. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of lateral movement in with all the movie. kids' bedrooms. You can kind of uh-huh. get a sense of them. Yeah, mm. there's a lot of lateral movement of things moving left to right, right to left. Um, uh, but a lot of what the way that the house was framed was done very subtly. It was done with static shots and then shots that push in uh, or or widen out very, very, very slowly um, to the point where you, you're pro- you're really not even realizing what's happening. Right. Um, so uh, do you have any thoughts on that carport? A lot goes on there. Yeah, I mean, it's. There's so much. To, I, I know that sounds really weird. There's so much. So much to, to talk about with, with that carport with the garage, yeah, with the, man. With the dog poop um, in the hail, but it, there it is. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's so much. There's so much. There's layers of symbolism with that. With she has to cross through a literal river of shit to escape the, <laughs> you know, to escape her situation in life. Um, you know, there's just so much going on there, um, and. And, it, you know, for her, it's the one way out and it's so tough to cross. It's such a it's such a threshold to get across. And yet every other character seems to be struggling to get in. Hmm. Um, you know, every other character that we see in that area is really trying to come inward. Uh, you know, the father takes great operatic care to, you know, arrange everything perfectly as he comes in. Right. The mother crashes through the you know the wall and and comes in that way but everybody is struggling to get into this house and into this sense of home and into this 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 realm that she is separated from and it's there for her um and yet the only thing that cleo can really think to do is try to get out or to avoid it entirely Hmm. yeah and yeah you know, at the at the end of the day, she comes back and she seems pretty content to be there. She says to you know, she says to Adela, she says to the other woman, she says, "Well, you know, God, I have so much to tell you." Like, she just seems so like she you know, seemed pretty okay. happy with how that yeah. Vac- she was like hesitant to go on that vacation, but at the same time, it seemed like it reaffirmed like that she felt like these people cared about her. Um, yeah, and which is nice. Uh, I mean. She's she's really likable screen presence. We haven't even said her name. It's Alicia Aparicio, uh, first time actress, and you wouldn't know it. Uh, she's very good, and I think that you, um, and it, it, movie hinges on that because it's all from her point of view, really. And it's uh, it's I, mean, I don't know. It's, she has to do a, a lot of a lot of different stuff and uh, be really tender and caring, be really scared at times, and. Um, I don't know. Like I, I just think you, you, you really want good things for her. So you're happy for her that she seems happy at the end because there's a way they could frame that at the end where she's kind of depressed to have to go back to that life. Um, right. Right. But I mean, I think you know internally, you know deep down that everything's going to be okay. And I, I know that that sounds maybe simplistic, but I think they foreshadow this element of, um, you know, I think Quaron foreshadows this element of. Cleo's sort of her universal balance, if you will. See what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> With a scene where she quite literally demonstrates it, um, where she goes to find Fermin and this guy, uh, the the great Zovek, right? Professor Zovek is there uh, teaching all of these young fascists, essentially, <laughs> um, you know, how to find inner peace. And all of them are sitting there struggling and, you know, falling all over the place. And then the camera cuts to Cleo in the back, 
perfectly balanced hmm. while all the other guys are falling all over the place and Cleo is standing there with her eyes shut and her one leg up like totally at at peace um and so I think they foreshadow that element that you know once that weight is removed from her and the balance is restored you know we know everything's going to be okay because she because she's okay because she's at she has she has that center she has that core um, she has that balance regardless of what else happens in the world. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 that's a really cool way to kind of put it and bring it full circle to our, uh, philosophy 101 lesson that you gave me at the beginning of the podcast. Um, are there any other, um, before we, before we sign off, I mean, are there any other, uh, points that we didn't really get to any other odds and ends that things that you wanted to point out before we, anything else I didn't ask you about or touch on? I just love that they drive a Ford Galaxy. I mean, just A, because I think that car is so indicative of, like, the 1960s um, and 1970s, for that for that matter. Hmm. But um, I also just love that it's a Galaxy, you know, that the name is Galaxy and that, it, you know, they, they, they abuse it. They're fucking, dest- they, you know, they destroy yeah, the she car. Drives, she they, drives it between two massive trucks and she, already messes it up even before they have that other carport scene where she right. drunkenly, yeah. They they literally crashed the galaxy. I mean, <laughs> this is, you know, we want to talk about philosophy. There's so much to dissect there. And there's so much to dissect in the rest of the movie. And, you know, there, I, I don't know. I, I would say that I have not, I, I'm not going to say I've picked up on everything because I think this this movie is a tome of, of philosophy and personal meaning to Quran. And I don't think have anybody's you, really ever going to know but him. So One other thing. Have you ever seen Marooned? Um, that's the movie that they're watching in the movie theater, right? I feel like I've seen... Uh, yeah, is, I guess it's a yeah, Gregory seen... Peck uh, vehicle, um, and I, I mean, it's about astronauts, obviously, and I don't know, a lot of people were, uh, I, mean, I guess it looks like it has G- Gene Hackman and Lee Grant, too, but um, they, I, I mean, a lot of people are saying, ah, ha, ha, it's like, a, it's like a gravity joke, and I didn't know if there was a little more I should have been catching on there, uh, aside from the fact that, like, some of those scenes maybe evoke a little bit of the scenes in gravity where you do have... Sandra Bullock running after George Clooney. Um, but I didn't know if there was anything right. else you took from that or not. But, I mean, a lot of people got a kick out of that, if nothing else, just given what his last movie was. Right, yeah. I mean, I definitely think there's that element to it. Um, you know, it's not a – if I recall correctly, I've heard it's not a particularly good movie besides the you know the visual effects, which for the time were considered to be pretty good. Yeah. Um, but I th- think it's – Yeah, one best visual effects of the Oscars. Being- yeah, it's recognized as being kind of a silly movie. Um, oh, okay. So I, I'm, uh, <laughs> you know, I like that there's kind of that, you know, I don't know. It's just a, it's a good setting piece. And, you know, I think it plays on several levels as both a reference to gravity and, you know, this idea of being lost in space, which is the philosophy of gravity and also, you know, elementally the philosophy of this movie, too. I hate to keep talking about philosophy, but I mean, it's there. So. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. that's if, hey, look, if someone's still listening to this thing and they haven't seen the movie, because, I mean, we've, then <laughs> uh, God bless you. But uh, obviously, if, you are, if you're into that kind of thing and you know more about philosophy than I do, then you're probably going to, you're going to appreciate this movie on a, several different levels. And I, and I appreciate it on several others, even though I'm not that well versed in philosophy myself. But it is kind of interesting to hear Elijah kind of contextualize it in those ways that, 
you can appreciate it in some of the same very scenes that I appreciated in very similar ways, even if you just know some basic Eastern philosophy. Um, Elijah, I, I appreciate you uh, joining me to talk about this one. It sounds like uh, you would also recommend people check this out. Um, and the last thing I say, though, is I think there's been all this talk about, like, oh, do you need to see it in a theater? Do you not need to see it in a theater? This movie is certainly worth watching, even if you can't get to see it in a theater. And I was I was like a crazy person and drove like two hours to Miami to see it in a theater because I didn't I have no life. But uh, <laughs> there's some interesting things this movie does with sound that we didn't talk about, um, mm-hmm. but like which are apparent if you put your headphones in, I guess, and if you're listening on a laptop. But like if you're in a theater, like you'll hear it coming from certain directions, and that's pretty interesting. But also just the fact that like there is so much detail in this movie, and even if you're trying to be super disciplined like I am and not look at a second screen, like it, it inevitably happens at some point if you're watching on Netflix, and that's like the the biggest thing you might lose. But like just make sure you like pay attention to every inch of the screen and i bet you'd probably agree with that yeah definitely every inch of the screen and, and get the best sound setup you can this is the number one asmr movie of 2018 so you know that's <laughs> um, uh, a joke but um, oh. it's the sound design is just incredible so you know to get to get the full experience i would say to you know if you can do both of those things god bless you so gotcha all right elijah before we go anything you want to plug yeah, man. Um, there's a lot coming up, obviously, in the next couple of weeks on uh, all of our Turner properties. Um, with uh, Christmas just around the corner and New Year's after that, there's going to be some great stuff on TCM. We're always showing some Christmas classics. And uh, Cartoon Network, we're going to be debuting some uh, new episodes of a couple of shows like Steven Universe and uh, I think Bakugan and a couple other things. So uh, if that's your bag, check it out. There you go. And uh, as usual, you can find me on Twitter at Josh Jernavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. And that is two words on Letterboxd. And thank you all for tuning in. Um, After you hear this, I can't tell you what the next podcast is going to be, but I'm going to be doing it on everything that's coming out in the next week. Our um, our, our friend Josh Brown is going to join me to talk about Welcome Tomorrow and in the Mule. Our, my friend Hannah is going to be back to talk about Mary Poppins Returns. Um, I'm going to have someone, not sure yet, might be a special guest to talk about Bumblebee. And, um, and yeah, I'm just going to try and somehow hit all these movies that are coming at us really fast. So uh, stay tuned for that, and we'll see you next time.